Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. Gives me great pleasure to say that my guest on this episode is Mark Kane. As far as I'm concerned, Mark would be on any list of the very few most important climate scientists in the world. He's also a colleague of mine here at Columbia, someone I've known for 20 years, during which time he's been an important mentor to me and a friend. Mark is most famous for his work in the 1980s with Steve Zbiak, his student at the time, in which they made the first successful predictions of El Nino using a dynamical model. That led to the creation of the seasonal climate forecasts that today are produced and used around the world. That was an amazing achievement, enough to make most people's careers, but for Mark it was still just the beginning, as he continued to make many, many groundbreaking contributions to climate science over at least four decades now. It's impossible to list them all here, but a theme in many of them is understanding how and why climate varies naturally, as well as how humans are changing it, how natural and human influences interact, and which is responsible for various aspects of the historical climate record. And one of the most remarkable aspects of Mark's work is his expansive, broad vision. Beyond physical climate science, he has made many pioneering contributions to the science of climate impacts as well, that is, understanding how climate influences human society. At least as important as Mark's research achievements, though, is his legacy as an educator. Mark has trained generation after generation of PhD students and postdocs, and an amazing number of them have risen to the very top of the field. In fact, I've interviewed a few of Mark's former students on this podcast. We've already put out my conversations with Jeff Shaman and Richard Seeger, and we'll soon release the one I recorded with Amy Clement. And we'll also soon put out a conversation with Ed Sarachik, Mark's close collaborator and friend since the 1970s, and when you consider that Michaela Biasuti, the guest on our first episode, was Ed's student, and that Mark is a mentor to me as well, you can really think of this whole first season of Deep Convection as being a sort of family portrait centered on Mark, if you want. And I think that in this interview, you can hear not just his amazing intelligence, but also the warmth, kindness, and generosity that have made Mark the father figure that he is to so many of us in this field. In fact, in recognition of Mark's special role in this season of the podcast, we are going to release two episodes with him, of which this is the first. This wasn't our original intent. This conversation, recorded in May of 2019, almost a year ago now, went on for three hours, and at the end, we'd only got through about the first 30 years of Mark's life uh, to when he had just got his PhD. So we had to do another one, and that'll be another episode, but I'll, I'll explain that story when we get there in the next episode with Mark. In this conversation, we start at the beginning, with Mark's origins in Brooklyn during the age of the Dodgers, his stint as a civil rights activist in the South in the summer of 1965, his interlude as a math professor in rural New Hampshire before he went to graduate school, and then his decision to study atmospheric science at MIT with the legendary Jewel Charney, and then how he switched to physical oceanography, a decision that ended up making a huge difference in his career as a result of a fateful phone conversation that he himself wasn't a part of. Along the way, we reflect on some of the things about teaching, research, and the other rituals and experiences that we professional scientists go through that are not so easy to explain to outsiders and that make us, in Mark's words, something like a religious order. And we talk a little bit about politics, but that's a topic that'll come up much more in the second episode with Mark. So it was an honor and a pleasure to record this conversation, so let me stop the introduction so you can hear it. So here without further ado, is the first of two conversations on Deep Convection with the great Mark Kane. So the ritual, Mark, is that we offer everybody a drink. So it can be alcoholic, and if you do, I will have one too, or it can be non-alcoholic as you wish. Let's do beer. Cheers. 
So I, I want to talk about your career and life, but at the same time, um, I know there's a lot there and it could easily take up all the time. So just, so although I think we should start there, I also want to say that I hope we find time before the end to also talk about the present in terms of science, uh, politics, climate, and whatever else um, comes up because it's a challenging climate. Moment. Climate will probably come up, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it, it, it's a tough moment, and I'm sure you have thoughts about it. Yeah. But um, if you're willing, I mean, can we start at the beginning with uh, where you're from? I was born in Brooklyn in uh, in the days when the, before the Dodgers left. And that I always think of as the beginning of the end of Western civilization. I've heard that. From yeah. people of your generation who came from there. When did they leave? I don't even when did they leave? They left in nineteen fifty seven. Okay. They won their only World Series in Brooklyn in nineteen fifty five. Can and I so ask how old you were in nineteen fifty? I was uh yes, I was I was uh, in the their last through their last season I was twelve years old or going on thirteen. And so you were traumatized? Yes, yes. You know, these were the heroes of my youth. This were the boys of summer. I mean, it was the great teams of Jackie Robinson and Roy Campanella and Pee Wee Reese. And, you know, and I think, I actually think uh, it had some impact on why I uh, was so involved with civil rights things, too. Oh, wait, wait. I want to hear about that, but we got to get there when we get there. We'll get there, but, you know. Uh, yeah. I, but the Dodgers, I mean, we could talk about the Dodgers. My dad was from the Bronx, so he so he was a Yankee fan, I guess. But uh, So I'd never got the whole Dodgers thing right. in my own family. But uh, No, no. Well, the Yankees were, well, first of all, they won all the time. Okay. Even then? I didn't realize that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, they won. They won the. They always beat the Dodgers in the World Series until 1955. I mean, they they played each other many times in the late 40s through early 50s. Really? It was a New York dominated league. Yeah. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> you know, the Yankees were always seemed like the rich team. Oh, they just, were certainly just like won- now. Yeah. And they were <laughs> just like now. And they were always and they were. Uh, uh, and they were a white team, you know, uh, for quite a long time until they got Elston Howard. But they, but I was they all years. were back then. Well, they were, but the Yankees stick stuck with it. Oh, only I mean the Red Sox stuck with it the longest. But uh, wait, so Jackie Robinson? When did Jackie, Jackie Robinson started at the Dodgers in 1947? And, and so, how fast did it take for the league to get like substantially integrated? Well, substantially would be overstating it, but you know, by by the early fifties, you had a, a fair number of black players. Okay, but not on the Yankees. Not on the Yankees. That didn't come till the late fifties. Oh, okay, uh, with Elston Howard in. Um, but you know, Brooklyn. I mean, Brooklyn, like the Bronx, I guess too. You know, there was always a little bit of Manhattan envy, or more than a little. I mean, Brook. It's different now. <laughs> Yeah, it's very different now. You I know. think it's gone now. Yeah, it's. But Manhattan of, didn't have a baseball team. Manhattan had the Giants, but wait, really? They played in wait. I don't yes, know yes, this. the Manhattan, the Giants played in the Polo Grounds, which was across the river from Yankee Stadium. Oh, jeez, I didn't realize that. See, oh no, I mean the Yankees used to, before Babe Ruth showed up, and in his earlier years with the Yankees. 
the Yankees played in the polo grounds, but they didn't own it. And and Jacob Rupert, they built this stadium, the house that Ruth built, Yankee Stadium, was almost deliberately built in sight of the polo grounds. Wow. You know, sort of an up yours kind of I didn't thing. realize there was three teams. I, I, gotta, I guess I don't know anything about baseball. It's like I'm a foreigner, but... Yeah, well, there were always these, um, and there were these arguments about who was the best center fielder, you know. The Dodgers had Duke Snyder, the Yankees had Mickey Mantle, and um, the Giants had Willie Mays. Jeez. And, um, you know, now at the distance when we don't have these, we don't have the loyalties the same way, you know, it's it's clear to me that, they, you know, that the best player I ever saw was Willie Mays. I mean, he okay. did everything. But anyway, onward. So, um, well, uh, where in Brooklyn did you live? I lived very close to Brooklyn College. Uh, I should and, know where that is, but I'm embarrassed yeah. to that I don't. Well, I mean, I know it's it's not it's Flatbush, shading into Midwood. Um, yeah. Actually, what did your folks do? My father went to City College, and he was had uh, came out with a master's degree in electrical engineering, and he graduated in the heart of the depression and yeah. couldn't get a job. Um, and actually, that he changed his name from Cohen to Kane. And so, yeah. wait, so he so he got out of college, couldn't get a job, and he changed his name. Did that did that make a difference? Yeah, he got a job. A- as what? As an electrical engineer. So he started working as an electrical engineer, and then he went into high school teaching. Um, you know, it was a, he taught radio at the city had a lot of vocational schools then. Yeah. You know where they taught. You actually had to do stuff. Yeah. And uh, so he did that. And then um, when I, that's what he was doing when I was born. And later he went back to being an engineer uh, for a while. And then he went back to being a high school, like a chairman of a department. And uh, he also worked on the side as, a, as an engineer. Mm. Um, he... The job I remember most was uh, he designed traffic signals. And your mom? You... My mom was, uh, she, uh, I mean, this is interesting because I never thought of it. Her parents were Im- were immigrants and they grew up in on the Lower East Side and in um, uh, East New York and Brooklyn. So they must have come over around the turn of the century? or Yeah, a little bit later than that. But yeah. yeah, basically the turn of the century, just after the turn of the century, our parents came. And um, she had a brother who was a year older, and they were both very smart, and they skipped, they skipped her one more year. They were also very competitive. And she went to Hunter High School, and then she went to Hunter College, and I never asked her, and now I can't, um, how it was that her, that she went to college, you know, in the 20s. I mean, it wasn't... You mean because women didn't do it that much? Women do, didn't do it that much, and she came from a from an orthodox... Oh, her yeah. father was a tailor, and, you know, they were... Oh. And, and, they uh, weren't one of the ones who dropped it because of socialism. They kept the, they kept the faith. But anyway, I don't know. I mean, my my mother was, uh, uh, you know, very um, kind of brilliant student. She she became a she was a social worker at 
yeah. in the 30s and uh, before she got married. And I don't know how much longer. I mean, and then had children and stopped working. And she didn't start working again until uh, my brother was in high school. Yeah. And um, she worked then as an attendance teacher, which means like a truant officer. And by then my father was became um, uh, high school. He was a high school principal. He was the principal of uh, William E. Grady Vocational Technical High School. So where does the science come from? It come, I mean, did it start before AP Physics from your dad's radio? I mean, where did you well, my, get Well, my, you know... My father was certainly very science-oriented and, you know, uh, like he, he read the newspaper and uh, he read technical stuff for because he was doing this, you know. And, I mean, basically, looking back, it kind of amazes me. I mean, I never, he never seemed, he never complained or, uh, you know, he was working two and sometimes three jobs. Um, you know, he was working as a high school teacher and then he went to work for Marbleite which was a uh, this company little company that made the traffic signals again uh in and that was in uh in Greenpoint Williamsburg so he did that and um and I went to high school and so we always did you know there was always a lot of like science and math uh trick puzzles and so on i really was more into math than science. Yeah. I mean, I was, I did, um, you know, that that was my thing. And then, it's probably still true, but in uh, the city high schools, we had, uh, we had a math league and we had math teams. You, you know. did that? What? And you did that. And I did that. Okay, so you take a lot of math, AP physics, you do the six majors, and then yeah. college, and, what happens? And then I... Um, so then I went to college. I went to Harvard, um, where... Wow. I guess I knew that, but I didn't really... Yeah. Was that, like, something that well, happened naturally, or, did, or, I mean, was it a big... Uh... Well, it was, It was. you know, looking back... Okay, so first of all, I was the valedictorian of my high school. Okay. You know, which... Go Mark. ...had a graduating class of 1140. So, so you were a star. All right. I didn't yeah. Quite so I was, you know, an academic whatever, and I was on the swimming team, and you yeah, know, I did. This but I mean, like, did you know to apply to Harvard, or did somebody come to you and say, "Hey, ah. kid, you are like, uh, you should really go." I mean, I, I just I, had the impression from my parents' generation, you know, that people did thought of that as sort of a faraway thing that wasn't. It was a little closer in uh, by my time. I mean, it was a lot closer, and you know, there were um, always. Uh, I mean, I wasn't the first kid from Midwood who'd gone to Harvard. There, there were a couple. Right. You know, it was usually one or two, uh, and basically that was kind of the. You know, you knew there was a sort of quota. They were going to take one or two from these. You know, maybe a few more from Bronx Science at that point. Was there an issue about being Jewish, though, or was that not a problem I, anymore? I don't think it was such a problem, except that the guidance counselor uh, I had in high school, who was, you know, some, the one supposed to get you ready for college, was had a mild, um, uh, my, I don't know if it's mild, but anyway, I mean, I have a feeling in looking back on it, she was somewhat anti-Semitic and wanted kids like me to go to prep some prep school first you know before we would go to an ivy league school why you were too uh, to be exactly okay 
Okay. And Did you have a stronger accent than you have now? Yeah. Uh, probably did, yeah. I would say so. It's pretty I mean, mild now. I mean, it's, it's pretty it's, mild. It's identifiable to somebody who knows, but it's not uh, yeah. extreme. That's right. It's, <laughs> you know, it's not, not like Bernie Sanders. No, no, I don't quite. <laughs> you know, as my that's right. I don't quite sound like Bernie. As my brother said, it wouldn't it be nice to have a president with no accent? <laughs> yeah, I love listening to him talk. By the way, I just can't get yeah. enough of it. It doesn't matter what he says. I just like just love his, his accent. I know He's, it's great, you know. And uh, so I went to Harvard, and uh, this is now uh, um, the sixties, uh, right? When did you start there? I I started there in nineteen sixty one. Okay. okay. And, um, Early 60s. you know, and I got involved in all the, this sort of left wing, uh, political activities. So there was already a lot in 61? Yeah. Well, they were, they were, it was, um, we started, there, there was a disarmament movement. Okay. Mm. There was a, um, a group called Toxin. T O C S I N mm. means alarm bell. Yeah. Okay. And um, it was uh, Peter Goldmark. And his father had invented the long playing record. And. Um, well, I mean, 33 uh, third. LP. Yeah. 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 And um, he later became the head of the Port Authority of New York and of the Ford Foundation, I think, or the Rockefeller Foundation or something. Okay. Right? Okay. And he was remarkably impressive to me, you know, as a college student, you know, was smart, articulate, etc. But anyway, we were organizing to disarmament and we would do all these studies and we organized some trip to Washington. And what I remember most about it was um, there was a kind of rally in this big lecture hall. And one of the speakers was Barrington Moore Jr., who was a Marxist sociologist. And, you know, we were going to go down there and explain to the government people how, uh, you know, arms didn't pay and stuff like that, that it was not economically useful way, etc. And Barrington Moore basically said, they know all of that. You're not going to be telling them anything they know, you know, that's not the reason they're not disarming. Um, Anyway, that that's made an impression on me over over time because you know, it's like uh, to jump ahead now. Okay, a lot of those Republicans know global warming is real. Yeah, and they've known it. Yeah, for a long time. Yeah, it's a very the denial is a very cynical. Yeah, it's world. not. Yeah. It has nothing. The denial has nothing to do with with fact. And I think world. most. Yeah, that's now. Clear. Finally, become painfully obvious, even to those. Who... Yeah, well, it, that's right. And I, 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 I knew that in a sense a long time ago because of what Barrington Moore taught me. That that's just not the way it. You know, that thinking that they're just factually off is not. That's not the issue. It's not it's, an intellectual argument. It's a. That's right. It's a power struggle. It's a power struggle. It's about um, um, you know. Judging that there are more important things like getting reelected and tax cuts for the rich and uh, yeah. et cetera. So. But wait, so so in 61, so was this activism 
I mean, Vietnam was kind of starting to, there was some presence, yeah. so that was starting to happen, but was it a reaction to that or was it more just the general no, Cold no, War? No, 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 it was Cold War. And stuff? It was Cold War. Remember, uh, too, there was the Cuban Missile Crisis. So Was that 61? Okay, yeah, right, 60, yeah, right, right. Kennedy is shot in 63, so, right, okay. Yeah. yeah, and people were, you know, it was scary. I mean, you know, you yeah, thought, I bet. yeah, you know, you thought, geez, this is. I mean, a lot of people ran off to Canada someday. But. I mean, this I'm not too young to understand because when I grew up here in the 70s and 80s, there was still a nuclear arms race, and we still knew that yeah. there was some chance we would get, you know, blown up any minute. So, right, uh, we didn't have the Cuban Missile Crisis, but I mean, the memory of it was. I mean, it was a little bit before my time, but it wasn't. It was did you fresh. have to? Did you have to go under? Uh, See, when, when we were in uh, in elementary school, we had these drills where we'd get under our seats in case of nuclear attack. No, never had to do it, but heard about it many, many times. Yeah. Yeah, we did that. And, you know, even, even you know, like as third graders, whatever, however old you are, eight years old or something, you, we all, you know, the joke was, yeah, you get under your seat and you kiss your ass goodbye. Well, I think that's why they eventually stopped doing it, is my guess. I mean, I think that's why they realized it was kind of a pointless exercise. <laughs> right. And then the civil rights movement, you know, came along and yeah. uh, we were involved in that. And um, and I started out as a pure math major. And, you know, that. and I took other things and I was torn a little bit. I mean, one thing was that I, it, it was, um, well, two things, I suppose you could say. One is you go to, you get to, I mean, obviously I was good at math, but, you know, you go get there and there are many people who are considerably better. Um, yeah. And also I didn't, you know, like when I took a course on differential equations, we proved, I learned how to prove that the solutions were unique. Okay. Yeah. But we didn't actually spend any time solving them. Right. You know. So and, you that, and that frustrated you? Well, yeah. I mean, it was sort of like discovering slowly that I like to calculate, yeah. you know, rather than uh, right, you know, uh, prove things. Yeah. So there was this program at the Goddard Institute for Space Studies where there was this you could be a summer internship, an intern, and uh, so after my freshman year, so this is nineteen sixty two, I I did that. Um, at, I went there. At, at Giss in Manhattan? Yeah. It must have just been brand new at that time. Yeah. It was at that time housed in the Interchurch Center. Yeah. Anyway, I learned to program. Uh, I'd actually taken a course in another high school thing at, uh, at Columbia, but I, I learned to program, um, you know, in, in Fortran, which was the the most exalted language of the day, you might say, for doing science. I mean, it wasn't... That must have been pretty new, too. It wasn't yet Fortran 66. It was Fortran whatever came before. Right. Yeah. Punch cards and stuff. Punch cards. Yeah. 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 And uh, machine... Anyway. But learning to program um, was... You know that was a, that was that made a big difference. I mean, essentially, in the way way things worked out for me, because mm. I really liked programming, and mm. uh, you know, and doing the those kind of problems. You know, where you computed stuff. Yeah. You know, got answers. So. Um, yeah, it's amazing. You think you know you can't do it, and suddenly the machine can do it. It's like wow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was pretty, and uh, it was fun. 
And then I, um, so I, I don't know, I was still a math major for a while, but then um, I kind of, I toyed with being a social, there was a program called social studies, and I thought about doing that, but it it was too late. They wouldn't let me into the program, which is probably, in hindsight, just as well. Um, but then, and uh, at some point or other, I switched to what was then called applied math and would now be called computer science, but it was about, um, it was still pretty, actually pretty heavily theoretical. I mean, there were two couple of strains. One was, um, uh, you know, artificial languages. So we, and I read a lot of Chomsky uh, linguistics. And, uh, but I also did uh, like li recursive function theory, logic courses and things like that wow. that people did. Yeah. Okay, so you're doing all the math, you go to GIS for the summer, you're involved in And I went back stuff. to GIS for the summer. Multiple times. Or, yeah, or... yeah, basically I went back after my sophomore year, my, uh, and my junior year, yeah. Did it help that it was in New York? Was that a... It, was it that a plus or a minus, <laughs> or did it not matter? Uh, no, you know, it was it was fine. I mean, I lived. Um, I don't remember where I lived one of those years, but one one year with my uh, roommates. By then, uh, you know, I rent. We rented a place on um, uh, right near St. Luke's. On uh, I guess it was on 114th Street. Mm -hmm. um, we move in, we plug something in, and it starts to starts to clock. It starts to fry because the place had direct current. Really? That was the thing at that time? You could have direct current in the, the wall in an apartment? Yeah. And did we know this? No. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, we surprised, <laughs> yes. It was, it, was, it was also my introduction to... Um, you know, to cockroaches in small armies and uh, yeah, other good things. And yeah, I, I experienced that as a kid for a while. Yeah, so okay, so a couple of summers at GIS. So did you graduate in, as a in math or, or did you in applied math? Applied math, yeah. right, right, applied and math, um, which was really computer science. Yeah, yeah, and I I applied and I went, I applied to a few programs in that uh, for graduate school because mm -hmm. you already knew you wanted to. Be a well, or I thought, I, uh, well, you know, this would be more like a computer science thing yeah. uh, of the time. Um, and I went off to um, to the South for the summers, 1965. So it was the year. Uh, and it was, I was part of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah. I know what that is, sort of. Yeah. 65. So what was going on in 65 down there? Well, it had slowed down. I mean, 64 was the summer, and it was a little, things were a little disordered. 64 was when those guys got killed. That, yeah. Yeah, 60, okay. Yeah. 64 was like called Freedom Summer, and a lot of people went. I think it was... Right. You know, and So you were tuned into that, but you were in school, and then when you got out, you thought, okay, this is my... Yeah, and, you know, however it happened, I thought I should do that. And I had a roommate uh, who was uh, African-American from... Uh, well, Chicago, Atlanta, both. But anyway, he had been involved in this. And I had another roommate, too. Um, well, he wasn't a roommate yet, who was a white Southerner. And that was really a brave thing, to be a, a white 
Southerner who was a civil rights worker because the, you know, those guys got beaten up the worst, like they really? were traitors. Okay. You know. Um, and you and you went down with these guys. I went down with the the, the black guy, so uh -huh. uh, Claude Weaver, and he was like the leader of our little group. I was the only white person in this. I mean, group of about half a dozen. I see. And we went. So that I mean, so so SNCC was like a larger thing, but you would have your own like little cell and kind of go do. Something. Yeah, yeah, to do you know to to do and it is something like the, the most. Uh, we we moved around a lot, which was unfortunate because it was things were disorganized. But we spent um, we spent a, some time in Greene County, Alabama, which was basically like feudal, as I saw it. You know, I mean, you feudal, had sharecroppers. F e u d a l. What feudal like the feudal system? Exactly. Not, not feudal like futile. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, uh, it was it was uh, you know medieval. And what Surfs, you, basically. And yeah. what we, what was your goal? We what were we were trying to register people to vote. It, uh, yeah, but in particular, there are these ag agricultural adjustment um, boards, and they basically assign you know say who gets paid not to grow stuff. Um, they're right. local elected boards. Yeah. And so, in a way, this is uh, among the most important votes in places, you know, farming areas like that. And we were trying to get uh, register all these sharecroppers, um, and uh, one of whom I, I stayed with. And it was, um, you know, it was it was pretty eye opening. I mean, I've never, you know, uh, it just was like. I don't know, another century or something. You mean not the work itself, just seeing how people lived? Seeing how people lived, yeah. The work itself was, was you know, what, is, what it was. I mean, you go, you talk to people, you try to yeah. get them to be willing to take the risk. Um, and, you know, that was hard. And the it risk was all, meaning that if they registered to vote, they'd, they'd be hurt, harmed? And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, the, to upset things and... Because they, they were pretty, you know, they were the, it, they weren't people who would want to call attention to themselves in this place, yeah, uh, and uh, and that was hard. And you know, it was also, I mean, I had a little uh, trouble, I, my, I mean, internal trouble with the fact that, you know, because I was white, they were pretty, they would tend to be deferential uh, to me. Mm -hmm. You know, it was ingrained. I mean, yeah. You know, it was the the culture. So um, anyway, that was we spent we spent a good while there, and then um, later we went to some place in uh, in North Carolina, uh, in the tobacco country, which is you know these this flatland to the east of. Uh, what uh, you know, well to the east of what's now the research triangle, yeah. and all that. And um, what I mostly remember from that was that uh, I was the only one who had a driver's license. Okay? Mm -hmm. We had access to a car. It was a VW um, Bug. Okay, and uh, this is a movie right here. Yeah, and I I was really not familiar with uh, stick shift. Which this was, yeah. Uh, okay. 
I mean, my children both learned when they learned to drive, they learned to drive stick. <laughs> but that's anyway. So I, I would, uh, there was from where we were staying to where we were working. And, uh, I had in my mind, you know, we, we had about six people piled into this thing, which was meant to hold four, you know, and you couldn't, I mean, it's not like in a VW bug, you can outrun anybody anyway, but <laughs> you know, no chance. But I was, I was, would it be anticipating in my head, uh, you know, for a long way before all the places where I had to turn, because obviously those are the places where you had to shift, mm -hmm. you know, which was still kind of a challenge. Uh, and, uh, but we always got there, so I guess it was okay. <laughs> okay, so not to spend all the time on this, it's fascinating as it is. So you do, so you do this for a summer, and you were applying to PhD programs. Yeah, I guess. And then, and well, well what I did was I went, I went, uh, I made the mistake of, in in a sense of going back to it was a mistake of, to go back to Harvard where, uh, you know, uh, because it was familiar, I guess, and. Few, but anyway, uh, in the same department, or yeah, in the same department, I figured okay, that would get me through the fastest, which yeah. might have been true, but except that I really didn't. I, I got there and I just you know, I'd had it. I mean, maybe it was the summer or maybe it was something else, but I just didn't want to be there, yeah, you know, and uh, also I didn't want to do uh, you know, I'm like. 21 or something and um i uh i there, there was the, all the artificial language stuff which was the heaviest stuff um i mean i had applied to to uh um hebrew university because there were some people there i wanted to work with but it turned out they were always in the u.s so i didn't go there um in which case i would have been there in time for the 67 war uh, yeah, but I missed it just as well. Um, but um, the uh, I don't know. You know, it was it was mostly about um, uh, this syntax, okay? You know, structural matters about language, mm -hmm. and didn't get to semantics. Um, and I thought that was um, it. It felt kind of sterile to me. You know, I didn't get it. And uh, I didn't have the maturity to see um, what you might see as, uh, oh, nobody's working on the, you know, this semantic stuff. That's really an opportunity. I mean, that's one thing you come, you can come to appreciate, although you don't always do it, even as a mature scientist, is that, you know, what, what nobody's working on might be an opportunity rather than, a, yeah. you know, something you shouldn't touch. Yeah. Sometimes it's something you shouldn't touch because you can't go anywhere. <laughs> you know, that recalls for some judgment. So maybe, you know, you can't blame a 21 year old for it. But it, it, it um, so I left there and yeah. I started working at, at GIS. And uh, by this time, the Vietnam War was going hot and heavy. Yeah. Oh, and I, I should not, because I was there that extra year, I met, uh, well, I'd known my wife, Barbara, but. Um, why? Because well, she was a student in Harvard too, or what? Yeah, she oh, okay. she was um, 
she she was in the dorm, the same dorm as my, uh, my the girlfriend I had, uh, uh, like my my sophomore year, who happened, who also was, who was someone who'd gone to Bronx Science and had been in that, um, uh, guess intern program. I see. Okay, and later became associated with science museums and things like that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, but we, you know, connected then and, uh, yeah, in, the, you know, in that year of grad school. In that yeah. year, yeah, and we, so we've been together now, uh, since then, 52 years. Wow. Been married 50 years. Mata. So, thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, so that was good for being there. But then I, I moved to New York and, um, uh, she went for a semester back to, she went to London, uh, the, she was studying African history. Wow. It's an interesting thing for a white person, white woman to be doing. In London, no less. In London, well, there's the school of, uh, Oriental, uh, no, it's called something else, but there's a big, you know, African studies program at the University okay. College London, I think it is, University of London, something. Um, anyway, and I, I, I got a job at GIS. I got an apartment in the East Village. So I was working there was on a, for a, a Turkish woman astronomer on a project about the solar, the atmosphere of the sun. And I mean, I wrote code, uh, you know, and, uh, wrote numerical algorithms. So how many years did you do this? How many years were you working at GIS in this capacity? <sighs> Um, so I worked there for four years, uh, I think it was. I was uh, considered vital to the space program, which kept me out of the Army. Right. Okay, you needed something. Yeah, because um, this I, is peak Vietnam time. Peak Vietnam time. I took. Uh, I did take some course at some point on uh, draft counseling. Um, yeah. yeah. Were you still doing political stuff, uh, you know, yeah, but not so much, really. Because um, you had a day job, couldn't just leave. Well, for I had to... I had the day job. I had uh, you know, and uh, people, uh, you know, there was. Uh, were you married already? You, Wait, when did you get? I got married in '68. So, oh, okay. but we were living together, you know. So yeah. it was, and and uh, of course there were uh, there were drugs and rock and roll. I mean, it was yeah. Know, it was so uh, I've heard. I yeah. was just born around then, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> you were you missed it, but uh, no. Well, I, there were still drugs and rock and roll later, but it was different. Yeah. It was different. It was you know, it really was. It was. I I, I mean, I can tell you that. Um, uh, Amy Clement, whom I know you'll interview later. Yes. You know, at one point she was thinking of like taking time off from the field, as yeah. it were. And I said, you know, don't do that. I said, when I, you know, when I was your age, things were really exciting and there was other stuff to do, but now it's boring. There's nothing, you know, nothing better you could be doing right now. To be fair, most people think that about the next, whatever's going on in the next generation, it seems to me, but, but maybe well, in your that, case, it was actually true. I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I think it was true. I mean, it was, it was, a, it was, a, it was, a, you know, a, a, a very, different time and the, uh, part of it was there was a light of hope in a sense i mean there was a you know a struggle but uh 
you know, there was tremendous optimism that uh, things would go in the right direction and, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, let's say partly realized, but not uh, not thoroughly. Yeah, that's um, the part that seems uh, distant. Yeah. But, you know, um, uh, I mean, I have to say, like, I never uh, thought that a black man could be elected president in my lifetime. Me neither. Yeah. Yeah. That was pretty surprising when that happened. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we have to acknowledge that as imperfect as things are. Uh, yeah. You know, there are no more uh, signs on water fountains. Uh, you know, there are problems, but um, yeah. there's also progress. So you can look, you know, mostly it's depressing right now, but, you know, you can still try to find some something good. So I worked at GIST and then... Uh, my office mate then was Tony Rosati, who later went to GFTL. Um, yeah. He's still there, sort of, well, semi-retired. Yeah. And we're still close friends. So I worked there. And then uh, Jastro, who was the head of the place, and uh, could tell a lot of Jastro stories, but maybe we won't. Yeah. And uh, the um, Tony tells them better anyway. But uh, the the this guy named Lou Kaplan had come up. I think he gets credit for uh, basically the idea of temperature soundings to, you know, from satellite uh, from satellites to give you temperature information about the the atmosphere. Retrievals, we yeah. would call retrievals now. Right, and um, uh so the question was what impact these might have on weather forecasting as a way in part of justifying yeah. having such things. And so we started a project that uh, Jastra was involved in and Halem was you know, running, basically. And uh, it was to, and, and Tony and I worked on, to um, see if these temperature soundings from the Nimbus satellite uh, would... In you know this this is would help and we did this by using a model, the GCM of the time, which was the Minsarakawa two layer model. Okay. Um, uh, and which had been I mean so Arakawa was at UCLA. Was it UC, I mean of course it's yeah I was trying to remember how how long he had I mean how long had that model been around that was must have been pretty not, not very long not very long. Um, there was that model. There was one that Chuck Leaf built by himself, basically. Uh, but the, that was the GCM, you know, of so that you were, time. So you were trying to put satellite data into there, or, or wait, real satellite yeah. data, or, or it was like an no, observing no, we, system experiment? There were no, like if the, satellite, you had it. the satellite hadn't been launched yet. Right, right. So it was like, yeah, if you had it, what impact might it have on improving weather forecasts? We would say it's an observing system experiment. Simu Observing system simulation experiment. Right. Yeah. Right. We did the first, as far as I know, those were the first observing simulation okay. system experiments. And um, I, uh, it quickly became apparent to me that neither Halem nor Jastro had much idea about how the atmosphere worked. And, uh, mm -hmm. You know. And I did you? 
No. But I you could just tell that there was something missing. Yeah, well, you know, they, it was like, okay. I mean, and so my default, I figured, well, you know, there are smart guys who know a lot of, I mean, Jastrow was a famous physicist and all that. Yeah. And um, Halem was a good, you know, applied mathematician. And if they didn't know and hadn't been able to pull it out of a book, I read a book, but it didn't help. And um, uh, so I figured that this just wasn't understood and we were, you know, limping along. Yeah. But then uh, they hired, uh, Jastrow hired Jewel Charney as an advisor. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so Charney came down and... Um, he later told me he mostly took the job because uh, he needed more money because he was he'd gotten divorced. So I see. But um, he'd been at MIT now for quite a while. Yeah. So this is late sixties. So he yeah. moved to MIT in the mid fifties. Yeah. Uh, you know. And you um, must have known about him from Johannia anyway, kind of. Yeah. I, I mean, I knew that there was this guy, but I had no. Yeah. Um, I didn't know what he'd done. And I had no, you know, I'd never met him at that point. Yeah. But he would come down and I, I was the programmer. I mean, actually, yeah, I mean, I did most of the work. So, um, and, you know, sometimes he'd come on the weekends and I'd go in on a Saturday and spend a day with him. And it quickly became clear that he really understood how things worked. You know, yeah. I was kind of amazed by that since I'd assumed that nobody understood it, you know, yeah. it was. And I asked him a lot of, uh, uh, ignorant, you know, very ignorant questions because I had no basis for asking other than ignorant questions. Yeah. And he was actually pretty patient with me looking back. I mean, he wasn't always so patient with, with fools, but there you go. Um, well, maybe the questions weren't so dumb after all. Yeah, maybe not. And, you know, it, sometimes he would say, you know, that's beyond, you can't <coughs> get to that. So, um, anyway, and it, it's funny. Uh, so we did this, we were doing this project and, um, uh, okay, and then there's a paper, uh, Charney, Halem, and Jastrow, and um, I was pushed off it as an author because Jastrow, Charney clearly had to be the first author and Jastrow wanted it to be alphabetical. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, it's truth. So, uh, uh, you know. Because that was a tradition in physics at the time. Yeah. And, you know, that, that way he wouldn't be uh, embarrassed, as yeah. it were. Um, what Charney wanted out of this paper, which was based on some model experiments, was uh, basically the problem, as Charney thought of it, was a more abstract problem. Charney had also started as a mathematician, and the problem he was interested in was whether if you had um, fields of temperature, a history, time history of temperature alone, you could reconstruct the entire state of the atmosphere. Yeah. Okay. Uh, like in a 3D field of temperature? or Yeah. Or, like, or, I mean, oh, it was or just a limited. No, sample. he was ready to do it with a 3D field of, um, you know, what you'd get it from a satellite, basically. So just that was the idea he, based on the ideas of balance and so on that he had exactly. been working with, I guess. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And in a way, uh, you know, if you throw in the surface pressure, I guess it would be 
fairly obvious it would it should work, but without yeah. that, it wasn't so obvious. Anyway, he, um, but in a lot of ways, if you read that paper, you can see he wasn't satisfied. I mean, he wrote the paper, and uh, you can see the places where it just is kind of saying, all right, you know, we're going on, even though we haven't actually worked this out. It's, I hadn't caught, really appreciated that, and I reread it recently for some reason. Um, anyway, so meanwhile, uh, Milt Halen really went, uh, the, he kind of turned into the Halen that uh, other people know. Um, he just got so carried away with this thing. Uh, there's there's a, uh, a Disney cartoon of Frog and Toad, and, uh, you know, whenever Toad gets a sees a new vehicle that can go really fast his eyes bug out too <laughs> great and and in a sense milt um started doing that i'd say with the know. idea of satellite yeah uh, with this whole project analysis yeah and yeah. the whole you know it was like a, 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 a you know some sort of magical path forward i guess i mean he wasn't so. wrong no, in no. His, I mean, <laughs> no, he wasn't wrong at all. But you know, it was it was like uh, you know, okay, calm down. But that wasn't Milt. I mean, uh, it's um, anyway. So he was taken off, and then we were, you know, we were doing all this stuff, and then um, and it was getting a little crazy. I thought, I felt, you know. And um, I'd been there for a long time. And also, the, the kind of breaking point for me was I did this experiment. <coughs> you know, again, these are numerical, you know, observing system. And he did this ex experiment with two satellites instead of one. And they were supposed to be, you know, one ninety degrees behind the other. Yeah. Okay. And... Um, but I made a mistake, and I overlaid one orbit on top of the other. So what it meant was that uh, the only difference between using one satellite was that the random number generator we were using to add errors was in a different place. Mm -hmm. Right? Okay. Anyway, the results came out better. And, uh, wow. Well, you know, by random, right? So uh, not that much better. And uh, and then I f discovered the bug and, you know, I couldn't convince them that there was a bug because they liked the answer. Uh, In other words, when you fixed it, it wasn't better anymore? Well, you know, when I fixed it, you had two, you actually had two satellites and yeah, it was better. But, uh, you know, it just was a signal to me that this was, it was, you know, I felt like things were completely... Uh, Running, running off the rails now, you know, with this whole project, it was getting like crazier and crazier, and um, and then uh, you know, and then in 1970 we had a baby and um, right thought about leaving the city, uh, you know. So uh, and I thought about uh, okay, so I thought about teaching in a small college, so we got. Lovejoy's College Guide and a map of, you know, New England and uh, New York. And 
So I was applying to uh, this new, I, one of the places that I ended up with was New England College in Henniker, New Hampshire. You know, I applied to be part of the math department and we, uh, they wrote back and said, what courses can you teach? And we went right back and said, uh, we couldn't find the catalog, so we didn't know what courses they had, you know, and there wasn't uh -huh. no internet in those days. So we wrote back and said, we can't find a recent catalog. Can you send one? And it was a school that said it catered to the second and third quartile students. Okay. And I once asked at a faculty meeting, uh, well, what do you do if you get first, you know, applicants from the first, the upper quarter? Yeah. Okay. And they hemmed and hawed, and the guy next sitting next to me said, we should reject them because the ones we get are crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Which turned out to be pretty true with the, the exception of uh, some veterans who were from New Hampshire. And the, the school, there was an engineering school. So, yeah. uh, you know, there were people who would come home and study civil engineering. And they were, they were quite bright and, and certainly motivated. Yeah. Anyway, so we moved there and... Uh, lived in the woods and, you know, for two years. And uh, by the second year, I was getting kind of restless. Um, I read, while we were there, I read a lot of Dickens and Tolstoy. It was a time to read fat novels. Uh -huh. There was plenty of time for yeah. that. There wasn't much else to do. In, uh, you know, the first winter, we had 11 feet of snow. It was actually beautiful. And then I, I decided to go back to graduate school and get a PhD. Um, yeah, because you just didn't want to continue in this. Yeah, yeah. it was like, to go back what to am science. I doing? What am I doing here? You know, what am yeah. I doing here? Uh, and uh, I applied to, um, I thought about what to do. I thought about going to law school uh, and uh, going back into computer science. And I did... The guy I had worked for on this information retrieval project was then at um, Cornell. I applied to that in Cornell, and I applied to a uh, computer science-y thing at Harvard again to be readmitted. And I, uh, and I also thought, well, you know, maybe I'll go study with a great man this time, meaning Charney. Yeah. Um, and I went down to uh, Cambridge and walked around the halls uh, with the computer building and uh, I just said yeah, bad vibes here I'm not going back here um, it just didn't feel good you know yeah so uh, so I went to MIT you know uh, yeah. and uh, to work with Charney uh, and uh, that was good so I've heard yeah, that was good. And, you know, yeah, I get to MIT and um, I, I am parked in this like a big room, which was a lab for a guy named Herd Willett, mm -hmm. who did, uh, you probably never heard of. But, I have heard of him, but I don't know a great deal about it. Okay. He did like climate forecasts uh, based on sunspots. And stuff. Yeah. And uh, the phone, he was emeritus. He was very old by then, but... Um, um, he, the f his office phone also rang in the lab. So that was like our phone. He wasn't in there that many days a week. And in fall, all these reporters would call to, um, for his forecast for the winter. Okay. Did he actually have any skill? I don't think so. But, uh, 
after a <laughs> Nobody time, figured that out yet. I, I don't think so. <laughs> but uh, no. But after a time, you know, we sometimes we would just get these calls as students in this lab and nobody else was around. Yeah. So we'd, we'd basically give them his story because we kind of had heard it enough. Charney assigned this, uh, another older student named Arthur Bass, who was working with Charney on quasi-geostrophic turbulence. Yeah. Um, and uh, Arthur had been a programmer, and Arthur told me that I would save a year over everyone else because I already knew how to program. Yeah. Because uh, everybody basically did a two-layer model at that time, or it seemed like, felt like it. But Arthur took me up to the 16th floor where the weather maps were. Mm -hmm. Still there in your day? Yeah, they yeah. were. They they would print them out on the whatever that fax machine or whatever that thing was. Yeah. I'm Hang sure they up. must not be now anymore. But yeah, I don't know how they. But uh, we should go look sometime. But anyway, uh, uh, he brings me in front of the weather map and said, "This is where they do the weather forecasts." It's like reading the entrails of pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the end of my forecasting career right there. Uh, I, owe, I owe it all to Arthur. <laughs> all right. Uh, you know, I just couldn't look at those maps again. And anyway. Um, but, uh, you know, so then I started taking courses and there was this very uh, difficult. I mean, Phillips taught a course, which was mostly thermodynamics. And Arthur was the TA for that course. Mm -hmm. And, uh, okay. And, you know, I worked, I mean, I was, I was much, I was older, a few years older than other people because I'd taken off. Uh, yeah. You know, even though I, I skipped a year. Uh, you century. must have started yeah. in your, your mid 20s, late 20s? Yeah, yeah. I was, let's see. So if I started in 1972. Um, yeah, I was just about to turn, uh, um, 28 I was 27 yeah yeah I started at 26 and even then like there were some people who were like a lot older than me but most people I mean that difference between 26 and 22 23 yeah. felt really big to me which looking back on it is absurd well but. at the time <laughs> well one of the things was that you know uh, I and for me and, and, and maybe uh I had one child already and another one coming, and so... Well, that's a big, yeah. You know, uh, and but you also, you'd done other stuff, yeah. and so you were, uh, you probably were more focused than the yes, average... Yes, it definitely, absolutely. If yeah. You, yeah, the people who went straight out of undergraduate had some kind of youthful midlife crisis in the middle, usually, which I got to skip because I already had it. Yeah, you already had it, and you also, um, right. I mean, one of the things was they, you know, what, what had they done besides go to school? And it was, you know, kind of like, yeah. what's out there, okay? Yeah, at some point you, they start wondering, do I really want to be here? Yeah. It's easier if you know what the alternatives are in a concrete way. Exactly, you know, and, you know, and I also, uh, uh, inflation started taking off, so we were rapidly running out of money. Oh, yeah, uh, 70s. Yeah, this is, you know, uh, uh, right, Gerald Ford and then Carter, and it was heavy inflation years. So, um, anyway, I took, so I took Philip's course, and uh, this still rankles, I mean, a little bit. Arthur would, you know, I got everything right on all the homeworks, but I blew one thing on the final, um, so... 
blew my chance at perfection in this course. <laughs> anyway, uh, it was it was presumably it didn't matter, right? I mean, no. as it wouldn't today. No, I mean, of you, course it didn't matter. <laughs> you know, it was just like ah. Uh, I mean, it was about you understood that it was that the thing was about the research, right? I mean, right, and well, that's right. I mean, you know, you had to pass the you had to. You had to do okay in the courses. You right. certainly didn't have to, you know, like, right, be a be a star or whatever. You just right. had to get through it. And, right. And, and, but this isn't. I mean, I, you know, this is the truth about about science PhD programs. But I think some of our, even our, some of our students today, you know, the you see some of them who are really worrying of like getting everything out of the class. And even though as a teacher, and, and it's a strange experience as a teacher to want to tell them to relax and not worry about what you're actually right. trying to teach them. It sounds counterintuitive, but it's like you shouldn't be worrying this much about it. We're all just, this is just the background to what you're really here for. Yeah, exactly. And and it's very hard. Uh, you know, there, there's this transition. I mean, one of, one of the things um, that's a little unfortunate, or and I don't know what you do about it, but you know, you go through high school and even college, right? And you you have uh, you take a physics course. There's a homework set. Yeah. Uh, you do the problem. There's going to be an answer. Right. Um, and uh, you know, you have to find the answer. That's it. Okay. Yeah. Whereas when you do, and if you don't, and if you don't, you can walk into the professor's office, and you know that they know it. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> even if you don't. Exactly. And the thing uh, when you do research is, first of all, uh, you know, you start and there's a question and you don't know if there's an answer or certainly you don't know if the question, the way you posed it, can be answered. Yeah. Um, and you certainly don't know if it can be answered by you. And then, right. you know, and then part of it is changing the question a bit. Um, yeah. And then, you know, what you end up doing in the end is maybe... I don't know. It might be uh, some small fraction of where you hope to get, but right. that's the best we manage. Right. And but ultimately, there's no back of the book you can look in. That's right. You know, one of the things that probably screwed me up forever as a teacher was in, you know, so we took a course from Lorenz, and it was perfect. I've heard this, yeah, many you times, know. yeah. He would come in with one sheet of paper. Yeah. And it was like... It was beautiful. It was everything followed, and it was incredibly logical. And and even, you know, when I asked him questions, you know, sometimes you ask the professor questions and a question, and the answer has nothing to do with your question. Yeah. Okay. Lorenz always gave me an answer that was on point. I mean, it was really an, uh, terrific. Um, but the trouble with that was that you couldn't see where the problems were, where the rough edges were, where the you know yeah. the issues were. So now Charney, um, who was a terrible lecturer actually, um, I took his course and there were notes and he would get up and the lectures were rambling and incoherent and he clearly didn't want to be doing it. <laughs> I, I love hearing the, I've heard this many times about people and, and yeah. I always warmed my heart because for those of us who are mediocre lecturers, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it makes us feel better. So, so what I started to do was, uh, I mean, it wasn't the only one, but I was, I was probably the most active at this because I just couldn't bear it. I would, I would read the notes on whatever he was supposed to lecture on, uh, really thoroughly, and and they weren't easy to read. Unlike, notes that he'd written, you mean? Yeah, 
Yeah. yeah. Um, and but there were notes for the course, and so they're he published. Give you them at the beginning or whatever. Yeah. Right, and you know they had errors and stuff, but. Uh, and I would come in. I think we met two. Two times a week for more than an hour, you know, maybe it was an hour and a half. I don't remember exactly, but. And I would come in prepared to ask him questions for the whole time so he wouldn't try to lecture. But then you got to see his mind work, which was fantastic, you know. But also the history of how people get where they're going hmm. is fast. You know, there's so many different aspects to it. There's the there's people's own biography and how people make decisions and how they how you choose where you're going and how you end up in different situations with different people. There's the at the same time, the science is going through its history and changing and everything. And the world is going through its history and everything. And you've got the civil rights. How all these things combined is just fascinating. And, you know, yeah. and, you know, I mean, it's a bit, as they say, uh, teleological. But, of course, we know now that you came to be a famous, you know, scientist who achieved a lot of things. So, in a way, part of going into science, and, and I, know, I know Richard Seeger feels this way, too, a little bit, is, is that um, it seemed like a way to get away from politics, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about, okay, so now we're talking early 70s and yeah. global warming isn't an issue. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, I'm not, first the of all, war is over. War is, yeah, is winding down and I've, you know, I'm burned out I have and I have kids and so on. Anyway, yeah, by this time you have two. Two. Yeah. One was born. Um, Jacob was born in 1973, so I was at, when I was at MIT, uh -huh. and um, my roommate and his wife, my you know office mate and his wife, came to Thanksgiving dinner, and the Turk Jacob, the turkey outweighed the kid. You know, it was that yeah uh, that time. So, um, but I I just was looking for something. Um, Else And, you know, also spending those two years in New Hampshire were, I guess I needed to do that to kind of sort things out a bit, you know, and decide. I mean, it, it could have, I could have stayed in a little college and had what for many people would have been a nice life in a beautiful place. And, um, you know, it didn't take much money to live there. I mean, we could, right. we could afford everything for sale in the town except a tractor, uh, yeah. You know, which I didn't need. Yeah. And, um, so. But you had seen the big leagues, right? Wasn't yeah. that some of it? Well, and also, you know, I was, it was, it, look, there was, there's in, you know, I confess to an inner drive. I just wasn't cut out to be, a, you know, a half-assed farmer and professor, right. teacher at a small place. I mean, at that time, I did really try to teach because that was all it was. But yeah. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't enough uh, somehow. It wasn't, you know, I guess uh, it was a kind of drive and so on. So, um, and then I just, uh, part of it was, I mean, a kind of luck. I don't know, you know, for you, but not, not luck exactly, but... Um, I did have a sense that I wanted to go somewhere where uh, the science was was kind of real and people cared about it and yeah and 
Johnny had given me that feeling, you know, when I met him at, yeah. at GISS. And I always felt that way about the time, you know, at MIT. It was like we were entering into some, you know, almost religious order, right? You know. It is like a religious order. Yeah. You're you're on there with your fellow novice monks. and uh, That's why I'm doing this. Because I feel that, you know, if you have two of us talking to each other... I'm hoping that that will, that it's possible for somebody outside hearing it to understand a little bit about our weird life because it is hard to explain. And it's not just because of the science, it's because of all the weird rituals that you go through. You know, there's a certain life cycle of, you know, graduate school and exams and and theses and papers and peer review and the advisor student relationship is a thing that there's no analog to it in the rest of the society i mean all these no. things it is a, right. it is a, like a religious order in a way it is and and especially uh yeah and and i mean it continues that way it was it seemed to me more i just felt with you know charney and then mit that it was more um it was more that way in the sense that uh I, I guess I didn't really trust these other ones, you know. Um, I mean, I shouldn't say this because he was he was a good guy, but I felt like the, you know, the guy I knew at Cornell. I mean, which actually, all around has a terrific computer science department, and probably if I'd gone into that, I'd be a lot richer than uh, I am. Maybe you might have been a little early for the real yeah. money. That would that would be typical, but uh, it, you know it doesn't matter. But anyway, the thing was, I I kind of felt like okay, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to really do it, and I want to go to a place where you know where it's serious business. One of the things that really kind of pushed me out the door, aside from just you know burning out at the pace that Halem was was driving this thing, um, but you know more than that, it was like. When I made this mistake, and I couldn't convince them it was a mistake, I mean, this seemed to me, uh, you know, I thought we should be doing science. Uh, okay. It and wasn't, what he was doing was too much engineering? Well, that it it was like there was something missing, you know, it, because um, it should have been, it should have been, you know, you should have been readier to, uh, I, I guess in a way, you know, looking at it from now, I don't know what I felt then, but... You know, if you calm down and slow down, then you look at what you're doing and you check it, right? You always do that. You don't... Hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. Well, you know you know that that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Okay. And, and you know, mostly I, I try to do it and I know you do too because you, you know, you don't... I mean, we don't want to publish things we end up thinking are wrong. I mean, we, it happens, but you don't... Yeah. You don't do it on purpose. Right. Um... But anyway, you know, I just, it just was getting out of hand, I thought. And it's true, actually. It was, GISS was, uh, in its heyday, was a terrific uh, institute, mostly for astrophysics and, you know, for astrophysics and, and uh, planetary science. But it, it had, you know, the, the people who were there were, were uh, big, the biggest names in the field and um it was it was you know i would go to some of these seminars i mean it didn't pick up that you know i didn't know much but you really could it was cutting edge yeah astrophysics at the time um 
And, uh, okay. And Jim Hansen was there in the late 60s as a postdoc. Mm-hmm. And I think he worked, I'm pretty sure he worked with Van der Hulst, too, as this, you know, the, the, a Dutch guy who was a, like the guru of radiation. Mm-hmm. What was his PhD in? I don't know. I in, well, he, he worked with Van Allen in Iowa. Oh, wow. Okay, so he, it was. Ooh, the belt is named after. Exactly. Right. So he done he he was basically doing radiation um, yeah. things, you know, which fit very well uh, as it came on later with all the satellite retrieval. Yeah, no, it worked that well for him. But he was also heavily influenced by Chorney. Uh, I hadn't. Where did right. I read this? Somewhere it's, recently. It's not obvious to the to the casual observer today. No. Well, what was what I mean was that. Um, God, I don't remember where I read this, but it was it was something about Hansen, I guess. And um, it said that... So Charney had this disconnection. This goes to later when, when he was doing the Charney report. Yeah. And uh, I think Manambi and, and um, Weatherall had already, you know, had done... They had this 1D radiative convective model. Oh, in the 60s already. Mid-60s. Yeah, in the 60s, and they had done some, uh, you know, GCM-ish calculations with whatever the GFDL model of the time was that were relevant to the global warming, or at least they set out to do this when um, Charney was organizing the, the Charney Committee to yeah. write the Charney Report. But he also got Hansen to do it. Yeah. See, Hansen had been working on, you know, planetary or whatever. As a postdoc. Yeah, and as uh, I, he might have been an independent, you know, uh, might have been hired at GIST by then. That I, I okay. don't know for sure. But um, probably he was by then, yeah. Because that would have been, a, you know, Young almost 10 servant. years. Which, now we're in the late 70s. Okay. But in this article, it comes out that, you know, it was his, his Hanson's wife who they quoted who said, you know, she could see a change in him. You know, it was like he, he found his problem. Because of Charney? Because Charney had asked him to do this radiative calculation about global warming. Oh, I see. He had been doing planetary up to then. Yeah, he yeah, did yeah. it, right, and he got right. the answer, and he right. appreciated... All right. So you don't you mean know, that it was that Charney influenced him in terms of that he got interested in geophysical fluid dynamics or anything like that. No. Just that he set him on this problem. Exactly. He set him on this problem, and in... You know, so I took Charney's course and I asked him all these questions and he often gave us homework problems where uh, there was no answer. I mean, you Love had that. to you had to change something in the problem. It, yeah. You know, there was I do some, that too but by accident usually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I usually think I know the answer and then I screwed it up. Well, I think you did it by accident too. You know. But he would you know, he would do that. I mean, and like on my, my general exam, he asked me a question that, you know, nobody could answer. But it was to see if, uh, yeah. what I, how I would think. Um, and I did terribly on that. It was an oral exam, and I did terribly because on my way, I rode my bike to MIT, and I I uh, was thinking on the way, wait a minute, our car was parked over there, and I, I didn't see it. Uh-oh. And I called my wife, you know, and I said, is the car out there? And she said, no, I don't see it. And I said, oh, shit. You know. Your car got stolen on the way to the exam? 
you know, the night before. <laughs> okay. I mean, you realize it on the way to Yeah, the exam. I realized it on the way to the exam. And I was, I just, <laughs> okay. they passed me anyway, you know, but I was. Did I you was mention it? Hopeless. Yes. That's yes. like, but because that would, I would think that would sound like a real dog ate my homework thing. Like that seems like that wouldn't help you to say that. Yeah. No, you know, but I, I was, I was completely incapable of thinking. I mean, it was just, it was terrible. Uh, anyway, well, what happened, Charney wanted me to work on the balance equations now. The nonlinear balance. Yeah. Now we have to get, you know, a little bit technical. I mean, um, so. We'll just tell, we'll just tell for the uninitiated. This is something very difficult. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. So. Uh, the first weather, the first numerical weather forecast that, in a sense, worked was uh, reported in a paper by Charney Fjortov and von Neumann. And in the 50s already. In the 50s. And it was a very simplified model that used a, a, a essentially, uh, you know, a, it was a, a, an equivalent barotropic model. And then yeah. they moved on. Two to dimensional, one layer model. So the atmosphere is a slab of. Yeah. Right. The atmosphere has a certain a fixed vertical profile and that's it. And you can't build you can't make storms develop. You can move them, but you can't make them develop right. in in the system like right. this. And then uh you know by the by later there were models that um also very simplified but would allow storms to develop, you know. They had just quasi-geostrophic yep. models, two-layer models and then they moved along. And um the balance equations were, uh, you know, another simplification that was a way of the problem. In a way, they were uh, would you would think would they were designed to solve was the problem that went all the way back to Lewis Richardson's failure to make a forecast, and you know, yeah, during the First World War when um, he didn't appreciate that you had to somehow filter out the gravity waves, the very fast motions that the yeah. equations allow. But the balance equations were ones that filtered those out but kept more of the the proper, um, you know, it was a more complete description of the slow motions yeah. than the other. Okay, so things. as long as we're doing this, let me take a crack at it. So the... So the problem. So Richardson was this guy who, in World War One, did by hand uh, while on the battlefield. You know, tried to make a weather forecast that took him years to compute, but it eventually he made a day, one day forecast or something. I can't remember a few hours forecast, which was wrong yeah. because it blew. He had a computational problem. His, his solutions blew up, and that was because he was he did, his time step wasn't short enough. Um, you know, the, the, uh, and, and so because he was trying to resolve he was solving the so-called primitive equations he was trying to resolve gravity waves which are a kind of yeah. thing in the atmosphere that's unimportant for the weather but you had to res he had to resolve it so then so then Char let me just try a little longer so then charney the, the barotropic model and the quasi geostrophic model that made the first successful computer weather forecasts were these clever <laughs> systems of equations that uh filtered out those motions so the the equations were changed so that you didn't have to have the short time step he solved the computational problem that Richardson had, and we were able to make a weather forecast only keeping the so-called slow uh, weather, but those were still not that accurate, so the, non the balance equations were the same thing, but trying to be a little more accurate, and this is another one of those problems that's interesting, it's like, it's, it's an early case of a problem that, you know, Charney kind of, and, and the other people, you know, von Neumann and the others, solved a problem that 
you know, they, they, they got around a technical limitation, I mean, a computing limitation with the scientific problem, with the scientific advance, a fundamental conceptual advance. And then they said, let's take this one step further. Hmm. And then that kind of never really worked. In other words, and eventually, but before it ever was successful, the computers got fast enough that it didn't matter anyway. Is that a fair well, statement? I, I mean, not, I, in other I, words, I, the problem Charney gave you never really, it never, you know, nobody ever really got anywhere with it. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's fair to say. And there's a reason nobody got with it. I mean, I felt even at the time, you know, I, I did had, I, I'd already had this exposure to the Min Sarakawa, which was a, a primitive equation model. And the weather forecasting was done with primitive equation models, which means... By that time already. By that time, which means... That, oh. I mean, they weren't very good, but they were, yeah. you know... Um, so why did Charney want to do this? It Just it, for the theoretical excitement? Yeah, in a way, I mean, the the point... From a theoretical point of view, okay, the primitive equations, which are also not quite primitive in in that they've already filtered some kind of motions that the full fluid dynamics equations allow. Yeah, they're hydrostatic but, and, yeah. They're hydrostatic. But they did uh, include gravity waves, which were not important yeah. for, um, not important for uh, weather. Yeah. You know. So in other words, he thought he could still make it better. He could get higher resolution yeah. to make the time well, step longer. Well, it was or also I think also it was a it was a theory thing in part. You know yeah. that you, I mean, people by then were talking about what was called the slow manifold, which meant you would. Oh, that term was already being. Okay. Yeah, yeah, leaf and. Um, yeah. Okay. So so the idea was that that the motions that described the interesting part of what goes on in the atmosphere for these people, which is you know related to weather. Um, not to gravity waves. Um, you it was looking for a uh, equations that would describe those and only those, the slow manifold part, not the gravity waves, and yet would do it with some fidelity, some much greater fidelity. Okay, yeah. now it's a very ugly set of equations uh, for a mathematician because um, it it. Uh, I mean, one way I can say it is that it destroys symmetries that the original equations have. And that seems ugly. But the other thing is that I sort of knew that, you know, as a, uh, in essence, at least as a practical matter, uh, the problem of how to get out, you know, get rid of the gravity waves to make weather forecasts had been, was being solved uh, for primitive equation models, which were much better to, for this purpose, really. And um, the other thing was, I wanted to do something that was more of a physics problem than, you know. Yeah. This was really a math problem. I mean, it had nothing, uh, you what know. Did he want and you, a computational I mean, I, I problem. I have to ask, what did he exactly want you to do? What was the... Well, he wanted me, he wanted me to write, uh, you know, because I could write programs. So... Uh, or just solve these things. Solve them. Yeah. You know, I knew, yeah. I knew I had, I had a lot of, uh, you know, what... Um, a background in you know scientific computation yeah okay. so uh you know which is is a so maybe he'd been sitting on this for a while waiting for somebody like you to come along yeah yeah i mean it was something he had worked on in the 50s and right you know pretty much not done anything with for a long time and but this is something that happens sometimes you have a problem you're sitting on for a while and you can't quite do it because the students and postdocs coming through don't have the right technical skills and then somebody comes and you say oh maybe this guy can do it right um but, you know, I, I didn't want to go into Charney and say, you know, I, 
I don't like this problem. I can imagine. <laughs> you know, I thought, uh, I mean, he was actually pretty good about, I mean, or, you know, in a, in a sense, he could be non-directive to a fault, you know, but for some people, I mean, it was good for those of us who, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't want to, I couldn't do that. Uh, so, um, you know, the story, which Sarachek probably told you, uh, I don't know. You don't know. Anyway, um, Charney had an, had an earlier, uh, sort of student postdoc, George Philander, who was a, an yeah, oceanographer yeah. Sure, from we Harvard. Know, we know Philander. So, so what happened was Philander was off in this oceanographic, uh, you know, as the field person for, as the person for the oceanographic person for this field program, which was mostly about convection, as you, gate and, and boundary layers. Yeah. Gate. Yeah. Yeah. Oh gosh. We could do a whole series on gate, but yeah. Okay. So George calls Charney and, and George, I guess, was like this from an early stage. And he, um, told Charney it would be good if somebody would, um, you know, do a model of the equatorial of the, uh, sort of Atlantic circulation, particularly the equatorial undercurrent, which was, you know, is the most striking dynamical feature. Right. This is the, yeah. So I, so this is where the water below the surface goes the opposite way of the way the wind is pushing it. That's right. right. And it was discovered initially in the 1890s. I mean, by, oh, really? by, uh, yeah, some ship sailing from Africa would, they, uh, they would throw, you would throw the wine bottles overboard, mm -hmm. um, to get them down deep enough where they'd cool off. Okay. Oh, uh huh. Uh huh. And they noticed they were drifting the wrong way. You know, they were. How drifting far down back. do you have to go to get them drifting the wrong way? Uh, well, it's, I'm not sure exactly where they were, but uh, you know, a uh, hundred in the Atlantic, a hundred meters would would kind of do it. But you know, they would do it by temperature. Uh, right, 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 right. Yeah. So. Essentially, I mean, you'd want to get below. I mean, they were they were trying to get it below about twenty degrees C. So. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so you had to get it down there. But, and that was lost and it was rediscovered in the, the 50s in the Pacific. But anyway, uh, it was known, certainly, at this yeah. point. And By the way, Sarachek did tell me this story, but I want to hear your version of it now. Okay. So, so Sarachek was the one sitting in the room at the time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so Chorney says, okay. And, you know, so he explained the problem to Ed and said, you'll do that. And um, Ed's, I think, in Ed's version, I wasn't there, so I have to take Ed's version on this part. You know, I said, well, I don't know any oceanography. And Charlie said, you'll learn. <laughs> okay. But Ed didn't know how to program, and he didn't want to learn. And right. this was a program problem that required, uh, you had, to, I mean, it had, it was in a nonlinear, the, the, to, be, to be anything, it had to be nonlinear. So Sarachik didn't want to do this. Because he didn't want to learn to program. Right. Okay. And I knew how to program. So, and I, I was also running out of money. You know, I needed to finish. So. Okay. You know, wait, because, so wait, how many years are you is, in at this point? Well, you know, this is probably 1974. So you knew where your funding was coming from and then it was fine. No, it wasn't and... funding money. It was oh. like, you know, I couldn't, we couldn't live. Okay. I had a wife. And oh, you just kids. had to graduate. You just wanted to get out of there. I, see. I needed to get. I needed to get out before we went broke. I see. Okay. Okay. Um, 
So, uh, you know, so I was in a hurry and I was, I mean, I, it was probably early in my second year. So that would have been 73. So it probably was before the field. Yeah, it was definitely would be before the field program happened. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, um, geez, well, try to get the dates. But um, I said, I'll do that. That's fine. You know? And Charney said, fine, whatever. I don't care about the balance equations. Well, he's, you know, I said, I want to do this. And Ed doesn't program and so on. He said, fine. Okay. Yeah, he was, you know, it was like, it was okay because uh, I came. I mean, I felt okay because I came with something positive. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, just saying, no, I don't want to do this. Right. Yeah. Which I couldn't. Right. Couldn't do. Yeah. So he was happy with that. And he, um, he kind of sketched out a structure for this model, you know. Had, yeah. He had an idea. I mean, you know, remember, there wasn't much computing power then. So this right. is, and the model had a, a, a boundary layer, like an Ekman, a surface layer. Okay. And then a layer below, and there was no um, stratification between these layers. And then below that, there was a deep layer that was motionless. And then, you know, you, it's like a, a one and a half layer model, but with the added feature of a surface layer. Yeah. And that would give you, uh, uh, you could have a kind of um, undercurrent. You didn't have much structure in the vertical, but yeah. you had it in, in, in X and Y. So just to translate for a minute, so we're talking about representing the ocean in which temperature, salinity, currents, and all, I mean, obviously, vary continuously with depth. But we're talking about representing that by a small number of uniform slabs of water to make the problem of computing the solutions easier. So yeah, it's a, it's a it's kind, actually, of, kind of classical kind of problem in, that we do in geophysical fluid dynamics and of, of simplifying the structure of the, either the atmosphere or the ocean to make it more, tra- right. pretending it's simpler than it is to make it tractable. Right. And it was, right, to, you know, it, uh, computations weren't really feasible for us in a yeah. you know, more elaborate model. I mean, GFTL was right. at that point the only place right. where you might think. In other words, you weren't, right, so you weren't simplifying it just to just to be elegant and clever, but because you actually had to compute something. And, That's right. And, the yeah. two, the two, yeah, you could say, well, but, you know, Charney had worked on undercurrent before and he had a sense of what he, you know, what it would take mm. to make this work. And, you know, and, and actually I got that pretty easily. It wasn't, um, mm. I mean, I don't know if I would have thought of the structure he came up with exactly myself, but, you know, I ended, it was easy to understand why that was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. given the, the literature and the background, which mm-hmm. at that point I read. Then I took an oceanography course or two, but one of them was uh, really uh, based on a book called Buoyancy and Fluids, and it was about small-scale convection, so it wasn't very useful for what I was doing. Mm-hmm. One was with Stamo, which was basically whatever he felt like talking about, which was quite <laughs> interesting, but also not, you know, <laughs> and uh, so on. So... Uh, you know, so off I went and, uh, that was how I got, that was my, my thesis work and it involved, um, it, it it involved some fancy numerical methods because I got advice, uh, uh, not so much anymore from Eugenia on that. I don't know if she was, was she still there? But, um, from Moshe Zreli, who was, yeah. 
in the applied math department. And uh, so I had a fourth order uh, finite difference scheme, which was pretty unusual for the time. Yeah. Know, it was more accurate. So I did that. And the other thing that my thesis was full of is, um, you know, we had learned uh, all this equatorial wave stuff. Yeah. Um, so in addition to uh, the... Um, and that was partly, um, like a lot of these things, I mean, that was Ed's doing. Ed would push everybody toward some place. Uh, like... What place? Well, for example, the Arakawa, uh, you know, Arakawa Schubert, I guess, paper came out. In 74. Yeah, that sounds right. And um, Definitely. I know. That one I know. Okay. <laughs> so... I mean, he he wrote things before that, but the Arakawa Schubert paper was seventy four. That, that was that was kind of the big one. Uh, yeah, the big one, and then you know we we all try to read that together because it's not an, it's not an easy paper, is it? It still isn't. Still isn't right. <laughs> it hasn't gotten easier. No, and and you know, and then we read the Anai paper that seventy three. Yeah, though you know, basically there was. There were the data papers. The data, yeah, the United one was kind of, it had a little bit of convective parameterization. It wasn't framed that way, but a little bit of it. Yeah. But it sort of had the framework That's right. that they were working in. And then Arakawa right. went the rest of yeah. it. Yeah. But, you know, mostly, of course, the time was spent trying to figure out what Arakawa was saying yeah. in that paper. And that was very difficult. While it, you know, conflicted with what Charney had done, Charney had enormous uh, liking and respect for Arakawa. Yeah. So... It was like okay. Anyway, so we did that, and then and then we got onto equatorial waves. I don't remember quite why Ed caught that one. So you were just doing your thesis with Charney. I don't actually know what's in your thesis. I mean, it's who who would why would you? Well, you must have published it. Yeah, sort of. I published most. I mean, there are two papers. What came out of my thesis were a couple of papers, um, essentially about this undercurrent model. You know, yeah. one is linear and it's it's does all this boundary layer analysis of the kind that was very sort of fashionable, uh, you know, um, perturbation analysis of that kind that uh, we did. George's thesis is, is is that, for example. And I did some of that for yeah. this setup, you know. And then, then the second paper is non, the nonlinear um you know, what happens when you look at the nonlinear problem? Yeah. Okay, based on numerical results and, you know, some vorticity equations that go, some, you know, some little equations that explain what you see in the numerical results. Yeah. Okay. And then I also did in my thesis all this stuff on equatorial waves, none of which came from Charney because it wasn't like, I don't know if he, you know, knew it or cared or whatever. Yeah. At that point. Um, not, I, mean, I mean, he probably typical. I mean, was this unusual? I mean, this was probably typical, right? His students were just off doing whatever he did. Wasn't a, he wasn't a close manager. I no, he was not at all. <laughs> I mean, in fact, um, there's a, uh, Kerry wrote once about him that, uh, this joke, you know, that people said, what, well, what is the, the, the difference between Charney and God? Okay. Uh -huh. God is everywhere. Charney is everywhere except MIT. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, that was how it was. And then, you know, you'd see him for a while and sort of get a few hints or something. And, you know, maybe, 
you know, maybe you had something you wanted to have explained. And, you know, he was actually usually pretty, um, I don't know, I found him uh, generally helpful, but I didn't really ask him for much. While we're here, since I know we're about to run out of time, I mean, while we're on the topic of, of you doing your work by yourself while Charney was hands off, kind of, I mean, you know, whatever you think about the status of the American university system today, I mean, arguably now it's not as world dominating as it was, you know, in the sense, but, but it sure was then, you know, the best system in the world. And if you look at the results and it was amazing, how did that work when you got a few, you know, really smart faculty members who basically let their students flail around on their own, occasionally impart some wisdom? You know, it's kind of amazing that that worked yeah. as well as it apparently did. Yeah, it was a good system, isn't it? In a way, in well, its but way. It, you could imagine it failing. You know, there must have been sure, something going sure, on there that, sure. you know, in other words, you have obviously the brilliant faculty, but they're not necessarily teaching well. So yeah. how is it that the students figure out how to do everything? I mean, it's kind of, but somehow they do. It's a, you know, yeah. it says how you yeah. choose the students or is there something going on there that we don't, you know, I mean, we are, those of us who've been through it, sort of have an intuitive feeling for how it works, but it's hard to, if you wanted to right. tell somebody how to replicate it, you know, yeah. it would not be easy. Right. Well, the other thing, no, you wouldn't. I mean, it, it was, you know, it also has to be said that, uh, okay, so MIT at that point was, you know, second place was pretty far behind. Uh, in at, this field. In this field, right. Right. Uh, you know, you had uh, two, I mean, if I, you know, arguably the three leading meteorologists you could say ever in whatever sense would be Rossby, Charney, and Lorenz. And well, Rossby was gone. Rossby wasn't there, but the okay, so two out of three ain't bad, <laughs> right? And Stommel right. was. I mean, in the seventies, wait, Ro- was Rossby still around, or was he back in Sweden? Or back whatever? in Sweden, or but he was still. He, not, no, he might have he died. Might have died. Yeah. I think he died by then. There's the Rossby yeah. Memorial volume, which was earlier. But, you know, I mean, the thing was, it was it was so for dynamics, certainly, you know, not necessarily yeah. for other things. And um, but even so, <laughs> I mean, but you're but even so it's but the style, you know, the style was to basically, yeah, throw us together, leave us alone. The courses were, you know, some were very well laid out and careful and crammed a lot of material into you. Um, some were pretty abysmally taught, mostly actually, I guess, if I, if I think back about it, you know, um, by, by standards, I mean, I've, you've probably done this too, you know, you teach undergraduates, yeah. uh, taught undergraduates, master's students and yeah. graduate students. And as you go up, the level of what you have to do for them decreases. I think. But the material gets harder. I material find, gets harder. I find the graduate courses harder because, in, on the one hand, because I sometimes I'm not sure even if I understand what I'm trying to teach them. But on the other hand, it's easier because I don't worry about it. I figure, well, they'll figure it out. That's <laughs> they'll, right. They'll That's make right. it somehow. I lower my standards of <laughs> how well I, I have to do it. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit like what you were saying before, that it isn't exactly what you're teaching anyway that they're going to use. It's You kind of hope not. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's sort of, they're, if they want to use that, they're going to have to go back anyway yeah. and, and kind of, uh, I right. wouldn't say relearn it, but deepen, yeah. you know, 
They, they didn't they didn't get it well enough to make use of well, it. Well, but also most of the time, you know, even without knowing that much about what the student's thesis problem is, almost it's almost guaranteed that exactly what you're doing in class is not going to help them all that much. Absolutely. And that they probably should be doing something else than obsessing about what's in the class. I right. Mean, no, very true. It's and just culture. You're kind of teaching culture. Yeah. You're teaching... That's probably true. That's usually true anyway. I, I think you're late for your dinner, aren't you? Oh my goodness, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll take it up some So we're going to have to stop the tape here. That was all. So although we edited that down to about an hour and a half for you, it was a three-hour conversation. And as you could hear, we ran out of time and we were just getting started. So you'll have to tune in again next time to hear the rest of my conversations with the great Mark Cain. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli. Our editing and audio post-production is by Duotone Audio Group, where our editor and post-producer is Dana Hom, and our audio engineer is Chrissy Lassiter. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. <laughs>